After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshipper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptised. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid, keep on speaking, do not be silent, for I am with you and no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. This man, they charged, is persuading people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to them, if you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names in your own law, settle the matter yourselves, I will not be judge of such things. So he drove them off. Then the crowd there turned to Sosthenes, the synagogue leader, and beat him in front of the proconsul. And Gallio showed no concern whatsoever. Thank you, Carl. Well, uh, everyone must have heard uh, that I was coming back today and uh, stayed away. Uh, yeah, so <laughs> going to cry myself to sleep tonight. Crumbs. Uh, but uh, though clearly there's a lot of people away on holidays, but it's great that we can be here this morning to, uh, to encourage each other and to sit under God's word. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. A uh, bit of Shakespeare. So, but uh, before we get into the Bible, let's, uh, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that you're a good and gracious God and that you love us, uh, that you've given us uh, your word in the Bible, that we might read it, that we might hear it and understand it, uh, that we might hear you speaking to us, your very words, uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we pray, Lord, that as we reflect on these words from Acts 18 this morning, that you would stir our hearts, you would open our ears uh, that you would help us to receive your words and to believe you and to put our trust in Jesus Christ. We ask it for his name's sake. Amen. 
Well, uh, today marks the start of a new year, Uh, I'm sure you know that, Uh, and even though it's entirely artificial in one way to uh, end a year here and to begin another year, that it's entirely artificial that yesterday should have been the end of the year and this should be the beginning uh, of a new year, even though it's entirely artificial, it's still strangely helpful, I think, to be able to put one year to bed uh, and to be able to embark on another year. Imagine what it would be like if it was like in Star Trek, where the time just kind of rolled ever on and on, stardate 659C3752, whatever it was, and the years just and, and time just went on and on, and you never got to mark off the end of one year and the beginning uh, of the next. It would kind of just be a very long, slow grind, I think. There's something uh, quite cathartic about getting to the end of something and saying, yeah, well, we got through 2016, didn't we? Uh, Let's begin on 2017. Uh, And for those of us who belong to this church, this coming year is going to be a significant year, I think. In just uh, under two months, we're going to be kicking off uh, a new service plant in the afternoons. And one of the reasons for us doing that is because we believe, and that as individuals and as a church of God, that God has called us to make the gospel known, to tell people about Jesus and to evangelise churches into existence, to evangelise into existence communities, people who, who love Jesus and who know him and who trust him. And so it's helpful, I think, as we begin this new year, this big year, this eventful year, Uh, As we begin this year in which we're taking that big step of faith, it's helpful in the lead up to that to work through these last chapters in the book of Acts where we read about the spread of the gospel, where we read about communities of uh, followers of Jesus being evangelized into existence, where we read about churches starting and the gospel going out. We've worked uh, in the past years, I think it's uh, over the past 18 months, we've come back to Acts a couple of times. We've worked through the first 17 chapters. If you uh, haven't been here for some of that, so if you want to catch up on that, uh, you can find those on the web. Uh, But today we're beginning with this uh, chapter 18, uh, toward the end of the book, and we're picking up in Acts with Paul toward the end of his second missionary journey. He has three big missionary journeys uh, that we know about, and it's about the year 50 AD. Not so long before this, Paul was a man opposed to the gospel, he was out to persecute the church, but after meeting the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus, his life was completely turned around. God sent him as a missionary after that to proclaim to people the news of what God had done in Jesus, to proclaim the message that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead to proclaim the message uh, that Jesus had died for our sins and had been raised to life for our vindication. And the events of this chapter take place about 20 years uh, after Paul's conversion. We uh, pick things up with Paul travelling to Athens in verse 1. It says there, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. In Athens, Paul meets uh, one of my favourite missionary couples in the New Testament, Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, They've been forced out of Rome by the emperor, and Paul discovers that he and Priscilla 
uh, and Aquila share in common the trade of making tents or doing uh, leather work of some kind, possibly. And so Paul joins with them in that enterprise, in making tents to earn money, money while at the same time uh, preaching the gospel. Paul's practice here in this chapter has given rise to an expression uh, common in, in Christian ministry of tent maker ministry. And it refers to the practice of people working uh, in a job while at the same time doing that in order to uh, support their, their ministry as well. Uh, elsewhere, Paul explains why he did that. So in 1 Thessalonians 2.5, Paul says he did it so that people wouldn't think that his gospel ministry was a pretext for greed. They wouldn't think that his gospel ministry was just a way for him to kind of rob people. Uh, he wasn't a charlatan. He wasn't uh, uh, just trying to make money for himself. And there again in 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 9, he says, Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We work night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. So that was his model. He was working in a job night and day so that in his off time he could uh, preach the gospel. Paul's assumption elsewhere is that gospel workers ought to be supported in their ministry, but he also at times himself worked with his own hands in order to avoid causing offence and also in order to make ministry possible where it might not otherwise have been possible. Uh, the kind of ministry that Paul models here is a kind of ministry which I think the church as a whole desperately needs. Actually, we, we can't do without it. There isn't enough money to support all the gospel workers that we need to do the ministry with which God has entrusted us. And it's a massive contribution in that, in that context then when people take up tent-making ministries. I went to Bible college with a guy who was a massage therapist and his plan was to continue doing that a few days a week while working in ministry. Uh, there are people in our church who deliberately work less days in the week than they could in order to have time for ministry. Uh, both formal ministry, that is with a job title in the church, and also informal ministry. They just take up uh, informal ministries that come along their path. Uh, there are others too, of course, uh, as well as those people who work less days. There are others too who continue to work full-time, so they work five days a week, slogging it out, uh, and then on top of that, work extra hard to do gospel ministry in whatever spare time they have left. There are people who, like Paul, work full-time and do go gospel ministry one day of the week. Uh, or, or in whatever spare time they have. Part of our vision uh, as a church, actually, from even before uh, the time that I arrived, was for, for us as a church to be uh, a kind of hub, if you like, to seek to, reach as, to, to, seek to reach places outside of Launceston. Uh, one third of people in Australia live in regional areas, and we're surrounded here in Launceston by people in small towns where churches are struggling and where churches are dying. Those small towns and small churches often can't support people, they can't support full-time gospel workers. 
And so one of the things we can do is to be a kind of a hub, if you like, in a regional centre where we train up people and send people out into ministry in those regional places, in those small towns. In New South Wales, one church is sending out recently retired couples who go and spend a few days a week in one of those regional communities uh, to do ministry. They send out an advance party, the advance party goes, they renovate the church, they repaint it, they do all the gardening, they tidy everything up and they relaunch. And this retired couple spends a couple of days a week there doing ministry uh, in a place where they couldn't support uh, full-time gospel workers. Uh, Of course, because they're retirees, they... Uh, may not need to even draw an income of any kind, depending on their super and uh, what they get from the pension. But they still give up their time and reshape their lives uh, to do gospel work. They don't need to be tent makers because they've saved up money over their whole lifetime uh, and that enables them to be free from ministry in their retirement. But people who take on that kind of work, that kind of itinerant ministry, don't have to be old or retired. They can be any age. Uh, they, can ju- ju- they can be just starting out in life. They could be just starting out in life and they say, right from the get-go, I'm going to shape my life in such a way so that I'll always have time for gospel ministry. I, as far as I'm able, I'm never going to work more than four days a week, if that's possible, so that I have that one extra day to do uh, gospel work. Uh, they, might have, they, they, they might be young, they might be just starting out, they might have a young family. They might be a couple with children who have grown up and left home. Whatever their circumstances, the key ingredient is that they're people who've reconfigured their lives to make ministry possible. Not everyone can do it, but there are people who can. Uh, and the church needs people like that uh, to do that, uh, take on that kind of role. Well, I thought to myself recently as I was thinking about this, why not pray that God would raise up 50 of those kind of people? Why not pray that God would raise up 50 people for that kind of itinerant ministry? Uh, And why not? This is a figure picked, plucked out of the air. It might seem ridiculous to pray for so many, but why should it be ridiculous to pray for 50 people? There's more than 50 regional towns in Tasmania that need gospel workers. And we worship a God who is powerful to raise up people for gospel ministry. Paul himself had a team of about 80 people crisscrossing the Mediterranean doing different kinds of ministry. And look at what God enabled them to do. He enabled them to plant the church across that entire region. And without people taking up tent-making ministries, it will be impossible for us as Christians to reach Australia with the gospel. So tent-making ministry is incredibly valuable, and yet it's still important to have people who are dedicated to full-time gospel ministry as well. And significantly, Paul does that here as well. He does both. He works to earn money, and then he changes later on to work full-time. So in verse 5, we're told, when Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. When Timothy and Silas arrive, Paul gives himself to only preaching work rather than dividing his attention between that and tent making. It's generally understood that Silas and Timothy brought with them not only their help, that is 
uh, in the form of their presence, but also gifts from other churches, the Macedonian church, in order to fund Paul's gospel ministry. So they come along, they bring money with them, and that means Paul can step back from his tent-making ministry uh, and devote himself to preaching the gospel. It's important, I think, for us to understand that tent-making ministry is not the only form of valid ministry. So sometimes that mistake is made. Uh, There are some churches, which some denominations of churches, which have historically not paid pastors out of conviction. So they've said, no, we actually believe that tent-making ministry is, the, is, if you like, the sole model of ministry. But Paul actually shows in this chapter that both are legitimate. Uh, and the important question is not which one is more godly, but the important question is which one is needed at this point in time? Which One suits the circumstances in which God has placed us at the moment. It's reflection on our present circumstances in the light of biblical principles that is needed, not rules about this is the only way uh, to have people in gospel ministry or this is the only way to have people in gospel ministry. Many church planters begin in uh, tent-making roles. So when Andrew heard, he's an evangelical minister on the central coast of New South Wales. When he started his church up there, he began as a tent maker. He began mowing lawns. He went up to start a lawn mowing business uh, and to plant a church. And he did that for a number of years. He mowed lawns. He got to know people in the community. But now he's a full-time pastor and the church has grown to over 1,500 people. Uh, It would be foolish for him in that circumstance to keep mowing lawns. Paul shapes his life and priorities in terms of what will best advance the gospel uh, and as individuals and as a church, we need to do the same thing as well. What, how can we shape our life uh, that, in a way that will best advance the gospel? But despite Paul's best efforts, despite his great intentions, despite his diligence, his hard work, the response to his ministry eventually becomes hostile. We're told in verse 6, But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. With the arrival of Silas and Timothy, Paul had focused his ministry on the Jewish people, but that had eventually ended in hostility and abuse, so that Paul has to leave that ministry and to move on to another kind of ministry. He shakes out his clothes and he moves on to ministry among the Gentiles. He says, as he goes to the uh, Jews in Corinth, he essentially says, look, I've told you about Jesus, I've told you that you need to repent, I've tried to convince you that that's true, Uh, I've tried to convince you that Jesus really is who he said he was, but if you're not going to listen, that's not my fault. I've done all that I can. Paul does what Jesus himself had told his disciples to do when he sent them out to preach the gospel. Jesus says in Matthew 10, If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. Truly, I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. It's an extraordinary command, isn't it, that Jesus gives? It's an extraordinary thing that Paul does. And it's difficult, I think, for us to know when is the right time for us to do that. When do we put Jesus' command into practice? When do we follow Paul's example? When is enough enough? When do we keep persevering? And when do we say, no, look, I've tried and now I need to kind of move on from this? 
there are a few observations that I think we can make based on Paul's experience here that helps us to know how to answer those questions. First of all, we need to assess what kind of response it is that we face. Is it disinterest or is it opposition? In the case of both Paul and Jesus, the response that they're addressing is hostility. Jesus refers to those who won't welcome the disciples and Paul is dealing with people who are openly hostile. And so I think it makes sense for us when there is still an opening, when there is still a welcome, it makes sense for us to take it, to keep speaking the gospel where it's still open to being heard. We might change the proportion of time that we spend with people if they over time continue to be disinterested but it doesn't seem that Paul or Jesus are calling us to stop sharing the gospel with people who are merely indifferent they are pulling out of sharing the gospel with people who are openly uh, aggressive uh, and hostile to the gospel second we need to ask have we done all that we can Paul essentially says I've done all that I can he says I'm innocent with respect to their eternal destiny. You, cannot be, you can't be innocent of someone's eternal destiny unless you've shared the gospel with them, unless you've really tried hard to convince them of the truth of the gospel. And so it's not until you get to that point that you can say, well, your blood's on your own head. You can't have one kind of moderate conversation with someone about Jesus and then say, well, I'm sorry, that's it. You can't, over 30 years, hope that your example will rub off on someone and then say, well, look, they haven't paid any attention to it and then leave them to be. We need to to try hard. We need to have done all that we can before we say enough is enough. Third, it's important, I think, for us to discern between Paul's mission and ours. Paul had been sent to, to, to make the gospel known as far and as wide as he could to reach as many people as possible. The disciples were sent uh, with that same aim. That meant that where there was no interest in the gospel, it made strategic sense to move on. Well, if they're not going to listen, I may as well go somewhere where they will listen. That was their kind of mentality. And while as a church uh, and as a people, as God as a whole, we share that same mission of trying to make the gospel known to the whole world, to new areas as well as uh, old areas. While that's our mission as a whole, it's also true that as individuals within that, some of us have been called to be patiently faithful in one place over many years. Which is another way of saying, I think, that the workplace is not the same as the mission field. You can't say to your work colleagues, well, that's it. Uh, I'm leaving here and I'm sharing the gospel with another workplace. Uh, you can't say to your family, you know, I've, I've been sharing the gospel with you for 20 years, I'm leaving this family and I'm finding another one. The, the circumstances in which God has placed us are different uh, and we need to take account of that difference in how we seek to apply uh, uh, this example of Paul. Finally, it's important for us to understand that part of the reason for Paul shaking the dust off his clothes is to confront the people with their hardness of heart. That is, Paul doesn't just stop turning up at the synagogue. He doesn't just say, well, look, you know, I've tried for 30 years. I'm not going today. 
I'm just I'm I'm not going to turn up and maybe they'll maybe they'll realize for themselves what it is that they've done. No, he he turns up and he says to them, he warns them, he says, I've been sharing the gospel with you for for, for all this time and you won't listen. I'm not coming back, but I want you to know what it is that you're doing. I want you to know that you're rejecting the gospel. I, I want you to know what that means for your eternal destiny. We should never just stop trying to persuade people about the truth of Jesus. We should never just say to ourselves, well, I've tried three times before, I'm not going to try again. In the same way as Paul, I think, if we truly love people, we should eventually get to the point where we confront them with the cost of rejecting Jesus. That's true whether they're hostile to us or whether they're indifferent They need to know what it means to be indifferent or hostile to the saviour and judge of the world. Well, Paul's move to preach the gospel to other people pays off almost immediately. (laughs) You get the feeling in Acts chapter 18 that he literally walks next door and 30 people are converted. Uh, We're told in verse 7, Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshipper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. Then, added to that, God appears to Paul and encourages him to persevere in ministry in Corinth. We're told in verse 9 one night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, Don't be afraid, keep on speaking, do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. God tells Paul not to be afraid and not to be silenced. It's remarkable, isn't it, that after seeing a whole household of people converted, almost immediately after walking out of the synagogue, after seeing loads of Corinthians uh, come to Christ and be baptised, it's remarkable that God still needs to appear to Paul and say, don't be afraid, keep doing ministry. I kind of think if I went to a house and the whole house was converted and then a whole town, uh, loads of people from my town were converted, I reckon I'd be pretty pumped for ministry. But I suspect it's a reflection of just how prone we are to be discouraged, even after tremendous encouragement, and how easy it is for us to give up in our gospel ministry with which God has entrusted each of us. For some reason, one discouragement, one bad conversation, often seems more powerful than ten encouraging conversations or ten encouraging things that people say to us. Ten people are converted or they grow in their faith or they volunteer for a new area of ministry or they reshape their lives around the gospel in a powerful way. And then one person complains about how you did something or, uh, or they reject your patient explanation of the gospel. And that one discouragement seems to wield a disproportionate amount of power to deflate you and to cause you to give up uh, the gospel ministry that you've been given. And it's in those times that we need to remember these words of God to Paul, don't be afraid, keep on speaking, don't be silent. But God also promises Paul protection here. Do not be afraid, keep on speaking, don't be silent. Why? Because I am with you and no one is going to attack and harm you. 
You can understand why Paul might be afraid. He'd been strongly opposed by his own people when he was preaching in the synagogue. And at the end of this section, that escalates to him being brought before the proconsul Gallio by the Jews. Clearly, when God says to Paul that no one is going to attack and harm him, it's not a promise of complete, uh, completely smooth sailing. But remarkably, when Paul is finally hauled before the Roman ruler, he's set free. In verse 14, we're told he's just about to speak, he's just about to give his defence, but he doesn't get a chance because the Roman ruler gets there before him. The Roman ruler comes to his defence before Paul has anything to say. If you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanour or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I won't be the judge of such things. God's provision of protection is so complete that Paul doesn't even have to say anything. But the promise of protection is not so comprehensive, if you like, as we might have imagined it to be, that is, he was still hauled before the proconsul in the first place. God's promise of protection for Paul was a particular promise for a particular time in a particular city. It wasn't a guarantee of how things would go once he left Corinth, and indeed, as you read the rest of Acts, you discover that he's persecuted quite uh, badly throughout the rest of his ministry. Nevertheless, although you and I don't have the same kind of promise that Paul has here, we do know that all that we do is watched over by God, that God will achieve his purposes through us and that we don't need to be afraid. And we certainly don't need to be panicked into silence because nothing, ultimately nothing, can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. No opposition to our gospel ministry can separate us from God's love. No opposition to our gospel ministry can take away the personal presence of God through the Holy Spirit. No opposition to our gospel ministry can destroy our eternal inheritance in Jesus. They might destroy our bodies, but they can't destroy our resurrection from the dead. John Patton was a missionary in the 1800s to what is today known as Vanuatu. Uh, and when he announced his intention to go to Vanuatu, he was warned by one respected Christian, you'll be eaten by cannibals, which was no idle concern, I should say. There had been two missionaries uh, 19 years earlier, John Williams and James Harris, who had been eaten by cannibals only minutes after reaching the shore. But Patton said, Mr Dixon you are advanced in years now and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honouring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will, be, will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. John Patton was a man who would not be terrified into silence because he knew of God's ultimate protection in Jesus. Don't be afraid, says God to Paul, don't be silent. But perhaps more important than God's offer of protection and more important than his command not to be silent 
is God's motivation for saying those things to Paul. God says, don't, don't be silent, don't be afraid, I'll protect you. Why? Because I have many people in this city. That is, I have many people whom I've chosen in this city who will hear the gospel through your ministry. People whom I've chosen who, when they hear the gospel through your ministry, will repent and believe it. And in response to God's encouragement, Paul stays in Corinth for another 18 months preaching the gospel uh, and building the church. Paul's motivation for staying in Corinth was not because he liked the summers. It wasn't because the next place wasn't ready yet. The motivation for not being silent but proclaiming the gospel was not because talking is better and it's a bit awkward uh, if you stay silent. The motivation for not being afraid was not because confidence is superior to fear. The motivation was that God had many people that he purposed to save through Paul's ministry. That's so important, I think, for us to understand. Obviously, you and I don't know how many people God means to save in this city or in this place. Is it 1,000 or is it 10,000 or is it 30,000 people? Is it 1,000 people in the next year? Or 1,000 people in the next 10 years? We don't know. But knowing the character of God and the extraordinary compassion and kindness of God, I'm willing to bet that it's more than we think it is. Even 1,000 people is only about 1% of the people in the greater Launceston region. Imagine if in this next year God saved 1,000 people. How incredible would that be? And it's not outside the realm of possibility. 3,000 people were converted on one day at Pentecost. It might be outside the realm of our experience, but that's not the same thing as saying that it's outside the realm of God's power. Are you afraid to share the gospel with your neighbour or friend or family member or colleague? God encourages us here to not be silent, to not be afraid, because he has many people in this city who he means to save by your gospel witness. How many? None of us know. God didn't tell Paul a number either. But he told him that it was more than none and more than a few. Well, as we embark here at this church on a big year, the history of what God did through Paul in Acts 18 is so encouraging, I think. It's a message of how Paul reshaped his life according to gospel priorities, of how Paul said the hard things to challenge people to believe the good news of how he refused to be silenced but trusted a faithful God. But most of all, it's a message of how God used him and others to reach the many that Paul couldn't see but whom God was determined to save. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, thank you that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. 
And Lord, we trust on the basis of your character, which you have revealed to us in our lives, but also in your word. We trust that you have many in this city whom you have purposed and planned to save. And Lord, we trust that you have put us here to be participants and co-workers with you in that gospel ministry which will bear fruit in their lives. Lord, we confess we feel most of the time completely overwhelmed by the prospect uh, of that ministry. But Lord, we trust you that you're a God who empowers us, equips us, who has given us all that we need for life and godliness. That you're a God who raises up people for ministry. That you're a God who raises people up for salvation. And so, Lord, we trust that each one of us, in whatever circumstances we're in, that you would help us not to be afraid and not to be silent, but to boldly speak the truth, the good news of Jesus, who was crucified for our sins and raised to life for our vindication. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.